Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In this final chapter of Romans, Paul has greeted people that he has met along the way. Those he's partnered with in ministry and come to love. And now Paul will issue a rather stern warning, a powerful warning. He will say, mark those who cause divisions. Be on the alert for troublemakers. For those who threaten the health, the unity, and the peace of the church. Who are these people? Those who cause divisions, verse 17. Those who teach false doctrine, verse 17. Those who upset people's faith, verse 17. Paul then proceeds to offer an explanation why the peace breaker or the trouble maker promotes division. Paul says they're in it for themselves. To satisfy themselves. To gain money or to gain power. For themselves, in verse 18. Paul then tempers the powerful warning with an even more powerful promise. One day, one day, the Lord Jesus will incarcerate and imprison Satan. And then he'll be temporarily released only to be confined once again to a place of eternal destruction, according to the book of Revelation. And so, it begs kind of a difficult question. Are you a peacemaker? Or a troublemaker? You might even think, well, why even ask such a question? Because Paul is not naive. He knows that we live in a broken and a fallen world. He knows that sometimes people with their problems, with their struggles, they become dissatisfied. They become disgruntled, unhappy, selfish. For whatever reason, they embark on a ministry of constant murmuring, constant complaining, constant griping. And the abrupt warning isn't some afterthought. It's not a parting cheap shot that Paul takes at his critics. In this final exhortation, Paul knows that a healthy church, a united church, a church that is experiencing peace and harmony becomes a target for people who want to end that peace. Many of you know that Colorado has experienced unwelcome storms in the form of floods and in the form of fires. And years ago, it was discovered that the Haman fire was started by, of all people, a forest 
service worker who served in the capacity of firefighter. According to the story, she and her husband were experiencing profound marital difficulties. They were right on the precipice, if you will, of divorce. They weren't speaking to each other. Her husband handed her a letter. She's out and about doing her job, and she takes the letter, and she's so angry and upset that she burns it in a fire, and the fire, according to her, spreads and consumes literally tens of thousands of acres Gerald Cornelius talks about a similar incident in Texas, quote, the Star Fort Worth Telegram reported that the firefighters in Genoa, Texas were accused of deliberately starting some 40 destructive fires. When caught, they stated, we had nothing to do. We just wanted to hear the red lights flashing and and the bells clanging, unquote. Can you imagine Are there circumstances where a firefighter might have to start a fire in order to combat a fire? We have firefighters and emergency service workers right here in this church. They assure me that there are special circumstances where that might be needed. But by and large, firefighters are supposed to fight fires, not start fires. And Christians aren't supposed to create divisions. They're not supposed to make peace impossible. That's not who we are, and that's not what we're supposed to do. There was a pastor of a small southern church who was on his way home when he met an acquaintance as they were walking in the town, and he wasn't a member of, of the church. And after chatting for a little while, the person said, how many people are at your church now? And the pastor said, I have 50 active members. And he goes, well, that's quite a responsibility and a stewardship. It's great to know that God has entrusted you with 50 active people. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I said that they were active, but 25 are actively against me, and 25 are actively for." me. Alan Redpath wrote that the secret of every discord in Christian homes and communities and churches is that we seek our own glory, our own way. And the healthy church is the ripe target for seeds of discord and disunity. But a ripe target doesn't have to be a soft target. Look again in verse 17. Guard the sheep. And by the way, Paul is a pastor. He knows that it's his job to both guide the sheep and guard the sheep. You've read the Old Testament where in Psalm 23 it says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But the same rod that a shepherd uses to guide the sheep, he must of necessity use to beat the wolves away. The New Living Translation has verse 17 saying, And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for the people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things that are contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offense. Contrary to the doctrine that you learned, avoid them. 
For Paul, division is a very, very serious sin. Divisive people must be recognized and then avoided. Paul told the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I'm pleading with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, with the same judgment. The plea itself is worth noting. Paul is in effect saying, I need you to be on your guard. I need you to be smart about this. I need you to be intelligent and aware. We live in a culture and a society where, and rightly so, it's okay for you to think the best and the highest according to the book of Corinthians. However, even as you expect the best, Paul says, be prepared for the worst. Roy Lauren writes, they were not to be gullible children, willing to give in to every anxious ear or to every preachment and argument. Roy Lauren writes, it is, it is just such alertness and guarded caution that we need today. Anyone who raises a voice can get a hearing, no matter how wild or extreme his talk may or may not be. Discernment is the precious possession of discriminating ears. Let us grow up in our minds as well as our bodies. Roy Lawrence says, one of the most difficult things there is today is to get people to think, unquote. And he's exactly right. Paul invites us. To think. Most people want to feel good. They want to go to church and they want to feel good. They want to a cathartic experience. They want to be experience an emotional release. And I understand that. I understand how feeling good is an important part of our culture, but with the invitation to feel good is you also run the risk of being fooled. There are several reasons why false teachers and divisive people have to be marked out. That means identified and avoided. And Paul gives the most obvious reason. A divisive person upsets the peace of the fellowship and serves as a stumbling block for believers. Remember what we've been learning since Romans chapter 14 and 15. Paul has said, Unity is important. We love unity. We value unity. We want to experience unity, harmony, integrity in our fellowship and in our relationships with one another. The word divisions in the Greek language is an interesting word. It's, it's, the prefix is dico. We get the word dichotomy from it. And staseus. It means to separate or to, to, to cause cleavage. The picture is a sword that cuts something in half. And when you cleave something, one thing goes in one direction and something goes in the other direction. And so Paul is using a word that means exactly the opposite of unity. The word offenses translates the word scandala. You know that word. Anyone who has ever heard the word scandal. 
Here, the word meant to purposely place in the path of a person making a journey to cause them to trip up. In our culture and society, as we look at over the painful problems that are taking place over the, over the last several years, many of you have come to know a word that you wish you'd never learned. Improvised explosive device. You hear IED all the time in the news. It's those things with which, which soldiers find themselves tripping over and the consequences are horrible and sometimes lethal. It carries that idea. Paul argues that such behavior is contrary to the doctrine which you learned. It's interesting to me in the original language, the word doctrine is singular in its composition. Why is that important in our study? It's important because he's not talking simply about one thing that he's taught. He's talking about everything that he's taught. He's talking about all the content of the doctrine of the gospel, of the person of Jesus, of of salvation and justification and sanctification. It's the total content of the sum and the substance of the revelation made by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Paul believes doctrine is relevant and that it matters and what we believe matters and how we behave matters because this too is important because some people will argue that doctrine itself is divisive or worse. Doctrine is irrelevant and doctrine is impractical or unspiritual or unknowable. And Paul says exactly the opposite. What you know and what you have been taught is not only relevant and practical and spiritual and knowable. Paul encourages us to to do all of those things. To know it and to live it. The Bible makes truth claims. That are unchanging with the passage of time. And it serves as the premise of wisdom. Last week when I had Dr. Ben Carson on on the radio program. We talked a little bit about his love for the book of Proverbs. And how the book of Proverbs teaches us that God, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That wisdom is the sum and the substance of those things that tell us the truth about God and about the nature of God and the person of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the dividing line between disciple and heretic. The gospel and the truth of the gospel is the difference between the apostle and the apostate. It is the truth of the gospel that is the line in the sand. And Paul knew that the recognition of that would in fact itself cause a separation. Paul was willing to expose what the false teachers and the false prophets taught. The stumbling blocks that they placed in the path of believers. And the scandalous way that they would live their life. And the very fact, the very fact that Paul uses the expression, read it for yourself. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Implies a high confidence and security that the Romans had a 
thorough doctrinal foundation. In other words, the Romans couldn't plead ignorance. The Romans knew about Jesus. They knew about his life, his death, and his resurrection. They knew about the concepts of justification and sanctification and glorification. According to Jesus and the Bible writers, doctrine matters. The entire book of Romans has been devoted to the large themes of doctrinal beliefs and practical behaviors. In broad categories, Paul speaks of the need of salvation and the way of salvation and the life of salvation and the scope of salvation. And the whole book began by declaring God's holiness and the condemnation of sin and God's grace in justifying sinners and the wonderful plan that God has in saving sinners in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so Paul speaks of sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, service. So doctrine doesn't deal with insignificant matters, irrelevant to the, to the Christian Doctrine here doesn't mean disputes over doubtful things like it says in Romans 14.1. Doctrine in its most basic and fundamental sense means everything that the scriptures teach about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. And Galatians 3.22 says, but the scripture, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe, unquote. And this is why it is with Tears that we point out that it's really important that we embrace everything that the Bible says as being true when it is in fact true. Do you realize that there were three things that could get you kicked out of the early church? And I don't mean kicked out just because you made a mistake or because you drew a wrong conclusion or you had a bad time or a difficult circumstance in your life. There were three things that could get you kicked out of the early church. The first was immorality. The second is heresy. The third is division. But whether it was immorality, whether it was heresy, whether it was divisions, the whole point that's given in Matthew 18 is to expose what is wrong and give people an opportunity to turn from what is wrong and to embrace what is right. It's to create an atmosphere and an opportunity where unity and harmony and peace are taking place, giving people an opportunity to look and see and determine, do you believe what God has to say about this subject? Are you willing to concede what the scriptures say about this subject. Can you look at what Jesus said? Can you look at what the scriptures say? Can you look at what what the church says? And for the person who says, I don't care what the Bible says, and I don't care what Jesus says, and I don't care what the church says, 
In Matthew 18, Jesus says if they don't care what God has to say about this subject, and they don't care about what Jesus has to say about the subject, and they don't care about what the church has to say about the subject, then you're to treat them like they're an unbeliever. But even with the unbeliever, he gently, wonderfully, consistently, over and over and over again, invite them to believe the truth about what the Bible says about Jesus and his love and forgiveness of sin. Jesus told the religious leaders in Mark chapter 12, verse 10, have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He expected them to read the Bible, understand it, and even believe it. Paul writes, mark them. The word in the original language is scopete. The word scopete means keep your eye on them. In our culture and society, when someone goes, when they do this, what are, what are they saying? I've got my eye on you. I see what's going. This is that word. This is that word. Keep your eye on them. Mark them. The word means to observe them. It means to focus. It means to contemplate. It means to scrutinize. And remember, we live in a culture and a society. When a person begins to really look at you and look at you closely, how do you feel? Uncomfortable. You know, it's one thing for a person to give you a a passing glance and go, and it's another thing when they start staring. And when they start staring and they won't look away and they stare and they stare and they stare, you go, okay, I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable here. Paul basically says, observe them. Observe what they're doing. And again, I'm going to suggest to you, it's an observation so that you haven't made a mistake, so that you haven't unfairly or unjustly or prematurely misunderstood their position. But once we do, what are we to do with the divisive person? Paul says, avoid them. People who engage in crusades of legalism or license. People who erode the truth into endless speculations. People who engage in wild prophetic speculations. The person who constantly complains, constantly grumbles, constantly murmurs, constantly gossips. The person who's the source of argument, constant strife, acting out of pride, ambition, selfishness. Paul says, avoid them. Heretics are to be avoided. But I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes I want to hunt them down. I want to take an olive stake and drive it through their theological heart. I want to hunt them down and make them go away. We know they hate crosses and the strong pungent odor of grace. And like a vampire killer, I want to take garlands of grace and hang it around their neck and watch them shrivel and die right before my eyes. But the Bible doesn't say hunt them down and drive a theological stick through their heart. Paul says avoid them. Not simply 
avoid their false doctrine. That's understood. Not simply avoid their sin. Avoid them. Well, does that mean we don't earnestly contend for the faith like it says in Jude? Of course we earnestly contend for the faith. Paul isn't inviting or even suggesting that we not contend for the faith. What Paul is saying is, guess what? Our purpose in life is not to make the dissenter miserable. It's not to destroy their life and it's not to make life miserable for them. It's not to cut off their heads or crucify their children or imprison them. Some debates only serve the purposes of the dissenters. And for some, Paul rightly says, walk away. Avoid them because of the terrible devastation that they can bring to the church. Avoid them. It translates a Greek word, which means to shun, to turn away from, to remove yourself from them. I think it means more than just, well, don't like them on Facebook. That's, I think it means a little bit more than that. I think it even might mean even a little bit more than removing them from your Facebook page. Someone said, if a man cheats you, quit dealing with him. If he's abusive, quit his company. If he slanders you, take care to live so that nobody will believe him, unquote. Is it possible that someone might say something about you that's just simply not true? Have you ever had someone come up to you and they said, hey, did you know that so-and-so was doing such-and-such? And your first thought was, that can't be true. That, that can't be true. Everything I know about this person would indicate that that's probably not true. No matter who he is, no matter how he misuses you, the wisest way is to let him alone because there's nothing better than the cool, calm, quiet way of dealing with the wrongs of persons or nations than to just leave them alone. Matthew 18, 7, Jesus said, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Jesus said that when you live in proximity and intimacy with people, they're going to step on your toes. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul writes, For you're still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, you are, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And in verse 18, it says, For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul continues, Are there other reasons to avoid the divisive person? Paul says, yes. Paul points out that the divisive person doesn't really serve the Lord Jesus. But they serve their own selfish ambitions. Now this becomes very, very important. Because the divisive person almost certainly is going to be the first person to say to you, don't we serve the same Savior? Don't we read the same Bible? Don't we believe exactly the same thing? And you go, that's the point. 
Because apparently you're reading a different Bible and apparently you're serving a different Jesus and apparently this different Bible that you're reading and the different Jesus that you're embracing and the different gospel that you're promoting is not what's here in the Bible. He, Paul says they don't really serve the Lord Jesus. The Mormon says, we're Christians. That's why we're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you go, no, the Jesus you believe in is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses, he's the archangel Michael. The New Age person says he is an ascended avatar, a person who's experienced some sort of clear consciousness. He is the finest example of humanity. And you go, much of what you said has some plausible points, but that's not what the Bible says. Paul will first address their motives. They're selfish and their methods. They're sanctimonious. Paul's words They use smooth words, flattering speech, deceiving the hearts of the simple. They don't serve the Lord Jesus, but their own belly, the word is stomach in the the original language. We get a word that some of you are going to be familiar with, koloste, if you're past 50, if you're past 60, And the doctors have said to you, well, you know, you're going to need a colonoscopy soon. And if you were, if you said something like, well, what? Well, what is that? Well, we don't need to go there. (laughs) The whole point in the passage is he's not talking about the physical organ that occupies the cavity of your body. He's talking about sensual appetites. He's talking about carnal cravings. The divisive person is addicted, gripped by selfish ambition, addicted to their personal urges. They want their own way. They want what they want. They want whatever it is that they want and they'll get it by whatever means is at their disposal. That's Paul's words. The divisive person is marked by personal excess. They may say something really foolish like I heard a TV evangelist say. TV evangelist gets on TV and he says this. Do you know why I would drive a Rolls Royce? Because Jesus would drive a Rolls Royce. See, yeah, you laugh. But he's not doing it as a stand-up comic routine. He's literally trying to convince people that the most God-honoring thing that you can do is have Rolls Royces and Lear Jets and multiple homes all at the expense of the people who he happens to be teaching. The divisive person idolizes their self, exalt their feeling, make up their own morality, engage in a kind of fashionable religion that invariably departs from the central themes of the gospel. The divisive person isn't serving Jesus or the Bible. They may say they love Jesus. They may say they're in the ministry for Jesus' sake. They may have membership in a, in a church and call themselves Christian. But their Lord isn't the Lord of the Bible. They're not committed to the gospel, to Christ's glory, to Jesus' mission, 
but to themselves and what they want. The divisive person becomes increasingly distant from historical Christianity, increasingly carnal in their appetites, increasingly sensual in the way they act out, increasingly secular in the way they really live their lives. No wonder Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 says, for many, many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. When he said that, he, he's bringing attention to the fact that there were a group of people who gladly heard Peter, James, and John, who gladly heard Paul the Apostle, who gladly read the letters that were written, who gladly embraced the reality of what it means to love the Lord, but they became enemies of the cross. And in Philippians 3.19 it says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. By the way, the divisive person can be one of the most gifted, effective communicators you've ever heard. He or she may teach with wondrous words and alliterated outlines or even employ clever phrases like, turn that frown upside down. And then all of a sudden you're smiling and you're happy. The old King James reads, and by good words and fair speeches, smooth words and flattering speeches. You don't know how many times I've heard people say to me, but I love him. I love her. I listen to him or her on the radio. I listen to them. They make me feel so good. I feel so good about myself. What did the person say about sin? Well, they don't like to bring up sin because, you know, it unnecessarily divides people and makes them feel unhappy or not not really good about their circumstance. i got to tell you something. For the person who won't bring up the subject of sin, then they can't in good conscience bring up the subject of a Savior who saves us from sin. People might even use persuasive and plausible words They'll take a Bible passage. One Bible, so-called Bible teacher said, Now, the scriptures say ye are gods. The Bible says I am that I am. And then one Bible teacher said, I know, I am too. And you go, really? What is this person trying to say? They're trying to promote their doctrine that you're a little god that you create your own reality and that you have every right to speak into existence everything that makes you happy and to confess that everything that doesn't make you happy shouldn't be a part of your life. No wonder Paul says false prophets deceive and false gospels deceive false doctrines, false Christ, false spirits, false teachers 
What do all of those have in common? Deceit. Deceit is the method. Deceit is the goal. The Bible says they're enemies of the truth. It says they deceive the hearts of the simple. Who are the simple? Those who have TBN on cable? No, that's actually not the meaning of the text. They deceive the hearts of the simple. Who are the simple? The unsuspecting. The innocent. The immature. The carnal. The newborn believer. The simple, by the way, refers to those trusting souls who never suspect, who never suspect, who never suspect that someone might lie. They never expect evil in the conversation. The unsuspecting, the simple are fond of saying things like, you know, I never suspected that that they could say such a thing or that they could do such a thing. I could never imagine that he or she could do such a thing. And again, in all fairness, in all fairness, is it okay to think the best and the highest? The answer is yes. Is it to expect what is right instead of what's wrong? Yes. When you go to a Chinese restaurant, do you genuinely expect them to spit in your food in the kitchen? Or when they bring out the plate, what are you expecting? That no one has spit in your food. We couldn't function if we didn't believe that way. But Paul says, I need you to be intelligent about this and I need you not to be ignorant about this. I need you to be careful. I need you to think it through. In Titus 1.10 it says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul writes, there is a time when we need to be able to expose who they are and what they say and what they do and refuse it to be a part of our life and our ministry Why? Because unity matters. Peace matters. Harmony and health matters. Look in verse 19. Guide the sheep. Mark what is good. In verse 19 it says, For your obedience has become known to all. I want you to think about that phrase just for a moment. For your obedience has become known to all. Where's Paul writing? Corinth. Who's he writing to? The Romans. What's he talking about? Their obedience. What is it about their obedience that is known to all? Apparently, not only have they believed what Paul said is true, but they're living their lives as if it's true. He says, therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. The New Living Translation says, but everyone, everyone knows that you're obedient to the Lord. Is that true about you? Does everybody know it? When people speak about you, is the first thing out of their mouth, you know, that person loves the Lord. They, they love the Lord Jesus. I see them in the word all the time. And, and they're not just simply constantly reading. They're finding out what God wants. And then they're willing to live their lives as if that's true. Paul intimates 
They practiced what was learned. They lived what they learned. They practiced the precepts. They became possessors in fact and also in act. And it becomes the most powerful way to resist heresy. Do you know what is the most powerful way to resist the divisive person and the heretical person? It's to, it's to believe that what the Bible says is true and then live your life as if it's true. How do we combat heresy? We learn what is right and we do what is right. And by the way, the word simple or innocent is a reference to that which is unmixed or harmless. Similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. Remember when he says, I need you to be wise as serpents and harmless. Simple, same word, as doves. Because not everyone who handles the truth is truthful. And not everyone who preaches the word is true to the word. And not everyone who picks up a Bible loves the Bible, believes the Bible, as if it's true. Our real safety and security lies in the knowledge of God's word and obedience to the word of God. Remember, Paul isn't accusing the Romans of division or heresy. Paul is suggesting that the Roman church is a healthy church and a strong church. Strong because they're obedient to the Lord. He says, focus on what is good. Avoid what is evil. And that's exactly what a strong church does. It focuses on sound doctrine and strong fellowship and committed outreach and obedience to the Lord. We focus on what is good. We ignore what is evil. We're obedient to Christ. Paul told Titus in chapter 2 verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, that glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We can live our lives in the constant expectation that Jesus could show up. Is that true of you? Has your obedience become known to all? And in verse 20 it says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Shortly the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. When I read this passage, you know what I thought about? Our parking lot. You might be wondering, why were you thinking about the parking lot? Because they were digging it up and they were filling it back in. And they were putting all kinds of, of coal and tar and all kinds of sticky, sticky stuff out there. And I would walk on the parking lot and it would get on the surface of my shoes. And as it's on the surface of my shoes, I'm thinking, this is exactly what's going to happen to Satan. One day he's going to be sifted and crushed and there's going to be little remnants of him everywhere we walk. And there's little pieces of Satan stuck to the bottom of your shoe. And as you get ready to enter heaven, Jesus will say, could could you please wipe your feet? It's covered with Satan. It's kind of yucky. Let's just take our shoes off and enter into eternity. You know, in the early church, they were engulfed and they were surrounded by paganism. And they were assaulted by dissenters of the hope of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus. 
William Barclay writes, the passage closes with a suggestive thing. Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush and overthrow Satan and the power of evil. We will note that the peace of God is the peace of action and of victory. There's a kind of peace which can be had at the cost of evading all of the issues and refusing all of the decisions. A peace that comes of lethargic inactivity. The Christian must ever remember that the peace of God is not the peace which is submitted to the world, but the peace which has overcome the world. So what is the message of the divisive person? It's contrary to what you've learned. What's the motives of the divisive person? Hey, they don't serve Jesus. They serve themselves. What's the method of the divisive person? And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul says, mark them. Point them out. Look out for them. Keep your eyes open for them. And then avoid them. You know, people can be either a thermostat or a thermometer. Have you noticed how much a thermostat and a thermometer look alike? They have numbers on them. They have something to do with the temperature. A thermometer records the environmental circumstances. The thermometer goes up when the heat goes up. It goes down when the heat goes down, but a thermostat is connected to the source of power. The difference between a thermostat is a thermostat can determine the weather, the circumstances, the environment. And that's the difference between being a Christian who is connected to the source of power. You're not here to record the environment. Oh, things are burning. Something's burning. You go up. When things go up, you go down when things go down? Or are you going to be the kind of person who goes, no, you know what? We are going to determine the environment in which we're living because we're connected to the source of power. The Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus, the Christian who's not connected to Christ. The Christian who's not connected to goodness and godliness and knowledge and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit won't change their environment. They might make the heat a little bit hotter and they might make the cold a little bit cooler. But they're not going to be the source of equilibrium, of harmony and peace. No wonder Paul says, I need you to be really smart about this. Because unity matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we don't want to be disconnected from the power source. We don't want to just simply reflect and record the temperature of the room. Lord, we want to be men and women who don't simply, like the song says, survive, but thrive with joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, love unstoppable, 
anything is possible. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.